0: Oh man, it's so good to be with you guys. Uh, one last time, uh, hello to everyone that's in the traditional service. I knew I was back at Calvary when Midge is like stuffing candy bars back in my jacket. So thank you for the candy bars again this morning. My daughter thanks you at least a minimum. Uh, hello to everyone who's watching online. And today the students are here in this room. Uh, amazing. <clears throat> Hey, I just want you guys to know uh, it has always been a big deal for me to have students here in this room. And I want you to know that it's a big deal for you to be a part of this community because you aren't the future of this church. You are this church now. So remember that you are needed here. Continue leading here. Pour into this community because this community wants to pour into you. And so just as a little bit of a side note there. As- Um, Lastly, I am really excited for my friend Dale to come and pastor this community. He is a pastor's pastor, and he will love and care for this community well. But before I do, I just want to thank um, the staff And uh, I want to thank the staff and the leadership team here for their leadership. Uh, Leading in transition, no joke, is is like one of the most difficult things I ever did um, as a pastor. So let's go ahead and like honor our staff and our leadership team, Rob and Christy and Danny and also their spouses who have to carry all of that as well. So Sarah, Adam, and Monica, thank you for what you guys do. And uh, thank you, all of you guys, um, for your hospitality and your warm welcome uh, home. And uh, it's been good to be with you for the past few weeks. And today we get to wrap up our series, uh, finally. So uh, we have been talking around this idea that woven into our humanity is this longing for home. And that's whether or not you grew up in a big home, a small home, a town home, a condo, a good home, a broken home, a whole home that we have this sense within our humanity that there is a sense of what home should actually be like. And when it comes to this idea of home that we know that it's so much bigger than just having a roof over our heads, right? But really, home is a place that represents acceptance and connection and safety and warmth. And now this isn't just a Christian people thing, this is a people thing. And so when we look through, like we we think about our how we've woven this into our humanity, we get this sense in which our search for home that we even use language like it's a quest. And so if you were an ancient Greek, there's a story called the Odyssey, and it's a story about a man's journey home. But maybe you're not so into Greek classics, but you are into Pixar classics, right? The whole story of Toy Story is about a journey home, finding belonging and acceptance, coming back to Andy, right? (laughs) Or maybe we even have entire TV networks that are dedicated to finding or building that dream home. And if you live in the Bay Area, it's just scrolling, pretending that you could actually afford these homes on Zillow. But the famous Christian writer and theologian C.S. Lewis says it this way. He says that this longing for home is actually an echo of a desire that's deep within our souls. And so C.S. Lewis says that if we find ourselves a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for someplace else. And what C.S. Lewis is talking about here in this quote is he's talking about heaven. Now, contrary to the popular songs we sing in children's ministry about heaven, heaven is not a big house in the sky with like the football field and all of that stuff. My daughter's here, so Felicity, just close your ears and just remember this for later, okay? Uh, but that besides us thinking about this idea that heaven is this like big house in the sky, it really is a place where we are reunited in perfect relationship with God. And what I want us to think about when we think about this idea of heaven is to think about heaven as a reflection of Eden. And so today, what we're gonna do is we're gonna do like those movies do where they start at the very end of the movie and then you kind of like work your way back to get there which my wife like she reads all my messages she's like Steve I hate those movies and I'm like it's a, whatever we're gonna be great okay in this thing what we're gonna do is we are gonna get a glimpse at what happens at the very end of the Bible and then we're gonna kind of work our way and to explore how did we get there And so what we're going to be looking at is we're going to be looking at the book of Revelation. It's really easy to find in your Bibles. It's the very last book in your Bible. And we're going to be going to the last two pages in your Bible. And as you guys are turning there in either your device or your analog Bible, if you have one like myself, it's written by the Apostle John. And what's incredible is that John is writing this at the very end of his life. And God ends up giving him this vision, this glimpse of what we have to look forward to. And so we're going to be starting in Revelation chapter 21, verse 1, and we're going to get a chance to explore a little bit about this glimpse of what heaven is going to look like. Chapter 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. And we're gonna go to verse 22. And I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Now, I don't know about you, but just reading those passages, isn't there a piece of your heart that just longs and desires for that day? That you think about you know, this idea that there's going to be no more pain and no more sorrow, and there's a part of you that's like, yes, I want to get there. I can't wait till that moment. You see, when we look throughout John's vision, there are going to be these echoes of Eden all over chapter 21 and chapter 22. In fact, the heading for chapter 22 in my Bibles, I don't know what it says in your Bible, but it's called Eden Restored. And the reason is that there's something about what we see at this glimpse of when everything is fulfilled that we all desire, a place of no more pain and sorrow. And we remember that what makes heaven heaven is actually an unhindered relationship with God. And so throughout this series, we've been looking at this idea that God's plan from the very beginning, from the very first page to the very last page that we read today, is that God's plan and desire is to dwell and make his home with us. You see, when we look at the story of the garden, we look at Eden in the very beginning, that what made Eden a paradise was that humans were in perfect relationship with God. Everything that humanity ever wanted or desired was perfectly fulfilled in their relationship with God. They never had to wonder, why am I here? They never had to worry, am I good enough? Am I going to be worthy of love? All of that was perfectly satisfied by God. And so in our minds, when we think about this idea of temples, we think about temples as this building that we need to go to in order to encounter or experience God. But what's interesting is that in the Garden of Eden, what we see here in the book of Revelation is that there is no need of temples. There are no need for sacrifices because humans enjoyed an unhindered relationship with God. You guys with me? You see, in the very beginning, heaven and earth were actually together. And so Eden, in Eden, we actually get a glimpse of the very first temple. And so therefore, Adam and Eve are the very first priests in which humanity partners with the creator in order to reflect his rule to all of creation. And so we're going to see it if you guys go all the way back to the first couple pages of scripture. We're going to be in Genesis chapter one. And Genesis chapter one, one of the reasons why I love kind of flipping through like like analog Bibles, you see all of these pages, you kind of see all of the ways that the story kind of connects. It's really pretty amazing. And so we look at in verse 27, this is what is said at the beginning. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish and the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And what's so important that's happening here in this passage in the very beginning, all of humanity's identity and purpose were wrapped up in this idea that they were created in the image of God. And the reason why that's significant is because in the ancient world, once a ruler began kind of conquering lands and they would begin expanding his kingdom, once the kingdom got to a point where it was too big for him to actually rule that area, one of the things that that king would do is that they would set up statues or images of himself called Selim so that people who are living on the edge or the boundaries of this kingdom, when everyone says, hey, who's in charge around here, that they would look to that statue. They would look to that image and say, that person is in charge. And so when we think about this idea of being created in the image of God, something incredible is being said about our humanity. That in the very beginning, God's intention of placing his image in us and in you and in me is to show creation who was in charge. And he gives humans this mission and this authority to represent him to all of creation, sending them out to fill creation with other image bearers in covenant relationship with him. It was a marriage covenant that they were to do this together. And it's after the fall of humanity that humans are driven from the garden and we start to see then the emergence of this idea of tabernacles and temples as a reminder of what God's desire is to dwell with his people. And we see throughout the scripture kind of these echoes of Eden that come back around, but it was also in all of the imagery of their buildings. And so when you look in ancient synagogues or ancient temples, one of the things that you're gonna see is imagery of the garden. It's not just that grapes and like vines and stuff like are really decorative and beautiful, which they are, but it's to remind them of Eden. This one is actually at a synagogue in Capernaum. And so you kind of see it again, fruit, trees. What is that all for? And the reason is that there's these echoes of what our hearts and our desires actually long for. And so today, as we can begin to unpack this idea of temples and, and tabernacles, quite frankly, you're probably going to know more than you ever wanted to know about temples and tabernacles. So we're going to frame it up in four different ways to help us understand what the purpose is, what these temples and tabernacles represented in Scripture. And we're going to frame it in this way, that the tabern- tabernacles and temples were about God's presence, about promise, about God's power, and about priests. And we know that it's true because they all begin with P. (laughs) So the first thing that we see is that everything about the tabernacle and the temple was about God's presence with his people. You see the tabernacle and the temple actually representing God's desire to be in relationship with us, to dwell with his people. And so when he delivers them from slavery in Egypt in Exodus 25, eight, God tells Moses to set up a tent, which was a tabernacle that represented his presence living amongst his people, even as they were wandering around the desert. To really say that even as they're wandering in the desert, that God has not abandoned them, but he actually dwells at the center of his people. And this is actually something that's gonna come up as a theme over and over again throughout the scriptures, that God wants to live in the center of where his people are. And one of the things that's really important for us to note when it comes to this idea of tabernacles and temples is that the tabernacles and temples were a place for people to encounter God, not contain God. In fact, God never told humans to build a temple as if he needed housing in the Bay Area, right? In fact, it wasn't until King David said in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that he was going to build God this permanent building which ultimately fell on his son Solomon that this temple idea would even be built. But does God need bricks, Chip and Joanna, Gaines, and shiplap in order to dwell with his people? No, that's not what it's about at all. In fact, when Solomon dedicates his temple in 1 Kings eight twenty-seven, he really says, can God even dwell in this building that I've created? The heavens can't even contain God. How much less is this house that we build? You see, God is saying that I don't need the shiplap. Gen Z already told me that was uncool. But what God desires is relationship. And so the tabernacle and the temple were really about God's presence with his people. You see, we have this saying that home is where the heart is. And we really use that to mean like the people, right? This is the same with God. Home for God is where his people are, even when they were living in exile. And so God promised that he would redeem and restore his people through the prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And if you ever read Ezekiel 36 and 37, go do that on your spare time. It's awesome. But I love that he says to the prophet Isaiah, he says that God is going to be called Emmanuel, God with us. This is something that gets repeated in the Christmas story when we read through Matthew. And the reason why that this is so important, so amazing to me is because it's saying that God is not far from us. That God is not against us or that God is not apathetic to us, but that God is with us. And as somebody who grew up in a Buddhist household where we had to go up to these little temples and these little altars and we had to offer the sacrifices in order to hope that maybe the sacrifices that we bring to the gods would turn around that God would bless us, that that is not the reality that we see in scripture. That God doesn't need our offering. He doesn't need our fruit because he is going to provide the offering himself. Because what God desires from the very beginning is not for us to please him, but he desires to be in relationship with us. And this is the good news of Christmas. And it's what we've wrapped this entire series around, John 1, 14, that says that Jesus literally is tabernacled among us, that in Jesus, God is truly with us. And so ultimately, when we look at tabernacles and temples, they really stand as a signpost to Jesus. This is the reason why there's somewhere around 300 prophecies that are specific about Jesus and his coming and what he's going to establish throughout the Bible. And so in the gospel, there's this interesting tension that happens between Jesus and the temple. And we see it right from the beginning in John chapter 2. Jesus walks in the temple and he begins turning over like money tables, right? You guys like know this story? And typically whenever we read this, we think, hey, the reason why Jesus is turning over the money tables is because he doesn't want to turn this house into a flea market, right? But that's actually something deeper is actually going on here because the exchange and all of that stuff was actually normal in their day. And so Mary Colo writes this book called Dwelling in the Household of God. She says that when Jesus comes in and is turning over the, temple, the tables in the temple, it's actually symbolic of Jesus turning over the entire temple system. And so Jesus says in John 2, 19, in the same period, he comes and everyone's asking him, like, why are you doing all this stuff? And Jesus ends up saying something crazy. And he says, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. And just in case we miss it, John tells us he was actually talking about himself (laughs) because this is something that we are going to see later. But in Matthew 12, Jesus is gonna say something very similar. He says that someone and something greater than the temple is here and he was referring to himself. That no longer are we going to have to buy and exchange sacrifices for the guilt of our sin, but because the tables have literally been turned, John says that Jesus is going to be the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And we know that the moment that Jesus died, this curtain that separated the Holy of Holies, that separated the Holy God from sinful humans that was so thick that it was said that two horses tied to each end of this curtain could not pull it apart, was torn from top to bottom. Which I love that detail because if I were gonna tear a curtain, I would start from the bottom up, right? But the reason why scripture tells us that it's torn from top to bottom is because it's only something that God can do. Amen? Amen. And when this happens, all people now have an opportunity to experience God. And when Jesus goes to that cross and raises from the dead, everything changes. And I love this moment because if you go back to John chapters 13, all the way to 19, as we talked about last week that Jesus kept telling his disciples before he went to the cross over and over again, hey, I'm about to go away. But when I go away, I am not abandoning you, but I am sending the spirit to make his home in you. And I'm calling you to make your home in the spirit. And so in John 15, he talks about this idea. And now if you were somebody who was living in the first century and you start talking about this idea of the spirit's home, what would you have thought of? You would have thought of temples, right? Where does the spirit live? Where does God's spirit reside? It resides in this giant temple. And so what Jesus is saying is that if God's spirit resides in the temple and now it resides in us, this means that we now, are the temples. And this is exactly what the apostle Paul is going to talk about in First Corinthians six nineteen. And he says this Do you not know that your bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? Which means this. It means that we are now embodiments of God's presence. It also means now that we now represent God's desire to be with his people and that we become signposts to Jesus. And this also means that we actually embody the third aspect of the tabernacle and the temple, which is to be a conduit of God's power. Now, this isn't the kind of power that we think about in our world and in our culture in which power really boils down to us and control but it's the kind of power that, John, that Jesus talks about in John chapter 14, where he says that if you remain in me, and if you live in me, then you're gonna be able to do everything that I do and even greater things than this. And it's after the resurrection that Jesus in Acts 1.8 is gonna say this, and you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. Now in my Bible, I circle and I highlight and I underline the word power because the word power is the word dunamis, which is actually where we get the word for dynamite. And so what scripture is telling us that is if we make our home in the spirit and the spirit makes his home in us, that we have the power of the Holy Spirit that is like dynamite. Isn't that amazing? This is what it means to be the temples of the Holy Spirit. And what I think is so interesting is that when Ezekiel ends up talking about the restoration of Israel in chapter 36 and 37, he talks about this idea that the temple, is he talks about the idea of the temple as this image of Eden to be a place where the temple brings about healing for all of the nations. And what's interesting is that right after the resurrection, the church now represents that temple that brings healing to the nations. And what we see throughout the book of Acts is literally God moving out of a confined space into the life of his church, literally leaving behind the building in order to fill the lives of his people. And so if you're in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 3, there's this incredible story that I don't have time to get into, but I'm just going to point out some nerdy stuff because it's going to help you make sense sure of what's happening here. But Peter and John are end up healing a man at a gate called Beautiful. And what we see in this incredible story is literally the dynamite of God, the power of God moving from the Holy of Holies, which would have been right there, outward. And what we see is this movement from the Holy of Holies to the beautiful gate. And literally it's this beautiful picture and this beautiful story in which God's spirit and God's power is now literally leaving the building into the life of his church. And so the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8, 11, just in case we miss it, that the same spirit, the same power, the same dynamite that raised Jesus from the dead now resides here. And it now resides in you. And as we learn to make our home in him, we begin to learn how to live out of that power. We learn how to live from that power. And in the same way that temples are representations of places where people can encounter God, we as the temples of the Holy Spirit now become outposts for the kingdom in our neighborhoods, in our schools, and in our workplaces. And the truth is I've never been more convinced of our need for that right here in the Bay Area. Because the reality is that your home might be the first, if not the only church that somebody will ever get invited to. And you might actually be the first, if not the only pastor, just because of the fact that you go to church that someone from the Bay Area might actually meet. And so it brings me to the last aspect of the tabernacle and the temple, and that is the priests, okay? And I know for some of you, when I say the word priest, you automatically get creeped out. Okay, so do I. But... The reality is that Eden wasn't about bringing sacrifices and rituals in order to get God to like us. But really the idea of the priesthood was about partnership and bringing God to all of creation. You see, God's original design was to partner with humans, giving them his image, his selim, and to give him a mission and authority to be his representatives in all of creation. And what I love in the story of scripture is that after the fall, God doesn't just like, put hard reset, everything, we're starting all over, but God actually doubles down with his partnership in humanity. with humanity. And so we see it with Abraham when he says that your ancestors are going to be a blessing to all the nations in Genesis 12. After the Exodus, God tells Moses that his plan is to make Israel into a kingdom of priests. And after the resurrection... We continue to see the mission and the empowered people of God, the spirit living in us. And when Jesus gives us the great commission in Matthew 28, and he says, all authority, which has been given to me, I now give to you. And then he gives us a mission to go out into all the nations. And then Acts 1, that we are going to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. And then it's going to double down again because the apostle Peter is going to renew that mission And he's going to say in 1 Peter 2, 9, that you, all of us, we should read y'all. Okay, y'all. I'm not from Texas, but Jonathan is. Am I right? Okay. Y'all are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you might declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. You see, all of this incredible imagery of the temple is something that always gets renewed to me every single time that I go to Israel, Um, which the last time that I went to Israel was in January of 2020 with Calvary. Um, At this time, I was still making fun of coronavirus. That came back to bite me. Um, But... One of the most iconic sites that we go to is at the Western Wall. And if you haven't seen the Western Wall before, it is incredible because it is huge, it is beautiful. And contrary to popular belief, this is not the wall of the temple. But what the Western wall was is actually the remains of a huge retaining wall that King Herod, the same Herod that was in the Christmas story, built around the top of Mount Moriah. And what he did was he built this huge retaining wall all around this and then he put the Temple Mount on top and then he built his temple right on top of that. And so what we have now is that the Western wall actually faces the back of the temple. Now in 70 AD, there was this other Jewish rebellion um, where the temple was ended up being destroyed by the Romans, which again was something that Jesus had already predicted. John 2, he's, this thing is going to come down, right? And what he's talking about was his own body. And so what is remaining after the Romans destroyed the temple is actually the Western Wall, which is just a sliver of Herod's temple. You can kind of see that kind of around the scale around there. This is what's left of the Western Wall when it's compared to Herod's temple. Now, Herod's temple was never rebuilt. And after 2,000 years, the reason why this little square area of land is probably the most sought-after and contentious real estate in all the world is because it's the place where Jews gather to be the closest that they can gather at God's presence in the temple. Now, people who don't even follow all of the conflicts that happen in the Middle East know why this is significant and why this is an important site to Jews and Muslims and Christians. The modern country of Israel today actually still feels this tension and this long history in which this land is constantly changing hands. But what's interesting in really modern history is from 1948 to 1967, Jerusalem was actually split into two, between east and west. Israel was allowed to inhabit the western side of the city, but the problem was that all of the sites that were significant to Jews and Christians and Muslims lied on the east side, including the western wall. And so for 20 years, Jews were unable to go to that wall to pray. But in 1967, there was a war that broke out called the Six Days War, which is this incredible story that you can look up and get really nerdy about. But Egypt and Syria and Jordan end up allying themselves against Israel. And in six days, Israel was able to capture and reunify Jerusalem. And the story that's so incredible about this is that the second that they reunify Jerusalem, there are pictures of soldiers who go and they pull out of their rucksacks, their prayer shawls, and they begin to go directly to the Western Wall and they pray. This is one of the most famous photos that we see that somebody just captured when they see the Western Wall for the first time because they go up to the wall and they say, we haven't been able to pray at this wall for 20 years Now it's a little bit hard for us to imagine, but in Jewish faith, the wall was the closest that someone can get to the Holy of Holies, the closest that someone can get to God. And today people from all over the world gather at this wall and they write these little prayers on pieces of paper and they end up stuffing it into the cracks of these walls. Now, every time I see this wall, what I am really struck by is that we as Christians see this wall as part of our history. It's sacred, but it doesn't represent God's presence. And we have to ask ourselves, why? And the reason why is because after the resurrection, we are given the authority by the blood of Jesus to approach and communicate with God directly. And that is good news. Amen. See everything that the temple represented of God's presence and his promise and his power now resides in us. And we become his priests, his bridge builders to Of Jesus right here in the Bay Area. And I have become more and more convinced of this need every single day as we continue to live in the Bay Area. Because now that I work in a high school and I work with Gen Alpha, Alpha, one of the things I'll hear is, Hey, Pastor Dang, I just hate the fact that we automatically assume that Jesus is the answer for everything. And I say, First of all, don't ever call me Pastor Dang again, okay? It's creepy. (laughs) All right, my name is Steve. The second thing is, it's true. Jesus still is the answer for everything. And I know that it's really difficult to live in this area, especially in a time when churches have shrunk and all of our Christian friends have moved to Idaho. (laughs) I'm sorry if you're watching from Idaho. I love you, but I hate you at the same time. All right? Yeah, just cry yourself in your big house that you can afford. Okay. But it's this idea when we look around, we're like, gosh, like there's all of these challenges. And the reality is that we can't keep doing what we've been doing for the past 20 or 30 years here in the Bay Area. The truth is, when I look at this area, I'm like, man, Christians are are increasingly uncomfortable with sharing the fact that not even inviting them to church, but sharing the fact that they are Christians, right? That like, we're almost embarrassed that we kind of hide. It's like, where are you going? You're like, I'm going to this place, you know, on Sunday morning, like, you know, right Because we're afraid to share, because people have all this stigma about the politics and everything that's going on. You're like, what does it mean to be a Christian in the Bay Area? And I find that there has to be something more. So how do we begin to do this? And so I just wrote a couple things down. The first thing is that we have to hold firm to the truth that Jesus is the answer. And maybe for us, we have to rediscover why. The truth is that people are going to ask us questions about why you believe what you believe and, the re- and there's answers out there, but we have to discover what those reasons are. I think that this is especially true for those of you guys who are students today, that you are growing up in, in a place where everyone is questioning what you believe and they think what you believe is, is like inconceivable, it's, it's ridiculous and it's ancient and it's old and we have to hold the truths to things that are contrary to the way that the rest of culture is moving. And so one of the things I do is to lean into those hard questions of culture to ask ourselves, how is Jesus the answer to racism? How is Jesus the answer to injustice? And what I've observed about our culture in the past couple years is I've become more convinced that what has been revealed is a lack of discipleship within the church. That we've forgotten what it means on how to grow and how to grow together and remain in Jesus. And what we've adopted within the church is a costless Christianity where we've prioritized preferences and convenience over what it is to be representatives of Christ here in the Bay area. And we've limited God's power, his dunamis to 35 minute sermons or maybe like 42 minute sermons. Okay. Every one to two weeks. And we've abdicated this idea of the priesthood believers to celebrities and church culture in which we just like, look, let's just click and see how many views did I get on YouTube and you be, let me be honest with you. In COVID, I lost myself. Like that's what I was counting. I was like, how many views am I getting? How many?" And like, I was like, it was, I've never been more called out by the Holy Spirit in this. And what I realized is that this is what we've all been sucked into. And the good news is that when we recognize it, we can change from it. We can experience something different because I want to experience God's power. How about you? I want to experience God's power in our churches. How about you? And the truth is, I believe that it can happen. And so let's rebuild discipleship. You see, I think that we are in a season of reseeding. And, you know, if you guys have ever, like my lawn, is, it's, ter- it's time to reseed, okay? And it doesn't look like anything, but what it is, you start casting out the seed, and we start learning and growing together. And maybe for you, it's really simple. Like, I want to read the Bible and understand it. So there's this great thing on YouTube called the Bible Project. Before you read a book of the Bible, just watch the Bible Project video. It explains it. It's an incredible place to start. And So continue leaning in and leaning in together. The second thing that we can do is we can remember that sometimes people say yes to us before they say yes to Jesus. I know that this sounds like heresy and maybe it is, but like, let me explain what I'm trying to say here. Um, I grew up um, when I first started in ministry, doing stuff with Young Life. And one of the things that Young Life says is that we have to earn the right to be heard within students by building genuine relationships and influencing them towards the gospel. The theological term for this is the word incarnational, which literally means in the flesh. And I think here in the Bay Area, I think the only church that somebody might step into really here might be our home. And so for us, what it looks like for us is maybe for us to realize that we need to step into a place where we are incarnationally living out what we believe about God in our world. To invite people into our life is really inviting them into a relationship, appointing them into a relationship with God. And so this is what we are leaning into in this time. And for us, maybe it's not being afraid that we don't have all the right answers. To remember, hey, like the Spirit of God is still working in you. You don't have to have all the answers, but you're like, hey, come on this journey with me. Like, we're gonna explore all these answers together because He wants to work through you and in you. Um, When we were sheltering in place, if you guys remember that, like a decade ago. Uh, I had this moment where people would come over and have coffee with me, right? Like outside and we'd go for this walk. And there was some guy who was was always walking with me. And um, eventually I was just trying to encourage him um, because he's not quite there yet when it comes to Jesus. And I just said, look, like, I want you just to say yes to what Jesus has for you. And he turned to me and said, Steve, I am not saying yes to Jesus, but I am saying yes to you right now. And I realized that we are actually people who are these priests who are literally bridging the gap for people to say, you know what? Like that's okay, but keep on that journey. And what my hope is, my desire is say, come walk with me and let me point you to Jesus. This is all of our tasks and and what we're called to do here in the, in the Bay area. And the good news is you're not doing it by yourself. It's not even you doing it. It's the spirit working through you. Okay. I'm going to get off that train. The last thing is that we can prioritize loving our neighbor. But seriously, like, love your neighbor, okay? Because sometimes when we're like, love your neighbor, we're like, okay, yeah, all right. I love my neighbor, right? But really what it is, what does it mean for us to love our neighbor in this season? When Peter writes that we are the royal priesthood, the word in Latin is the word pontifex, and it's where we get the word for bridge builder. And I love this image for us in the Bay Area because from the warriors to everything, like the bridge is iconic, and so maybe that's what it should be for the churches as well, that we are building bridges to our community to connect people with the savior of the world. And the truth is that people are lonely here in the Bay Area. And it's never been easier for us to show up. My kids played soccer. I promised them a corgi if they scored a goal. We never got a corgi. But <laughs> when we're when we're out with our soccer teams, I just meet the other dads. I meet the other parents they get so embarrassed because, I'm sorry, this is a whole sidetrack, but when they're, they're playing around the ball, I just go, it's Corgi time, you know? And they're like, dad, you know? They're like teenagers already. Anyway, but it's like I hang out with the dads and I just show up and be present. And the, rea- the thing that's amazing is like, now it's like we're in this little development league. We watch football on Sundays and it's been so easy just to get people together because people are lonely. And you might be surprised at the relationships that begin to blossom. When I looked at this idea of loving your neighbor, I asked myself, who is my neighbor? And then I looked over the fence and I was like, oh yeah, I actually have a neighbor. And uh, for some of you guys know that I've been like a a cancer chaplain for a while. And throughout the season of COVID, I've never been invited back to the hospital because I couldn't pray with anyone. We found out that my next door neighbor, Jim, was dying of cancer. And his wife invited me over to pray with him. And I went into his house and he had this bed because he was on hospice and I held his hand for an hour and I just talked with him and I shared with him stories. And the very last thing he shared with me, I want to share with you. And he said this, Um, he had built this, this awesome career, really successful. And he said, Steve, I want you to tell people that the greatest thing that they can do in this life is to live for Jesus. And I told him, To the best of my ability, I will. And so my encouragement to you as we continue in the Christmas series and the Christmas celebration and as we begin the new year, I don't know what Omicron or whatever number is gonna happen later, but live for Jesus because you have within you the same power, the dynamite that raised Jesus from the dead.